Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Vanessa Barboni-Hellick, founder and CEO of sustainable fashion brand Another Tomorrow. The brand launched early this year, just ahead of the pandemic, with big plans to tackle sustainability head-on while educating the consumer along the way. I wanted to ask Vanessa how that's playing out in this unprecedented year, including where sustainability falls among consumers' current priorities. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you so much for having me, Jill. I'm thrilled to be here. Excited to have you here. I want to like kick off with uh, your founder's story, I guess. You're not from the fashion world. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. You know, it's funny. I think in so many ways... Another Tomorrow is kind of my life coming full circle. I grew up in really small academic uh, towns in the Midwest and the Rust Belt to an art- artist mother, sociology professor father, really kind of growing up you know, in the mix of disciplines and, and really with this kind of ingrained understanding of conscious consumerism. You know, I grew up with the Whole Earth Catalog, um, you know, all, all that good stuff. And then I think really, you know, the aberration for me was um, I came out of uh, college and I had switched in the middle from architecture to economics. And I ended up in finance for 15 years where I focused on emerging markets at, at Morgan Stanley. And, you know, in that time, I think I was always really trying to find ways to align my energy with a sense of personal purpose. And I had left uh, briefly in 07 to go do a degree in energy and environmental policy. And finally, in 2017, you know, I really looked at the way that the world was going. And I said, you know, there's no time to waste. And so I really thought that the time was then to make sure that I was reorienting my career in a way that really was aligning how I was spending my days with, you know, where the world needed to needed to go. And the interesting thing at the time was that I actually thought I would stay in finance to do that. And I took a six month sabbatical, really with the intention of just shifting my focus from emerging markets to the world of sustainable finance. And in that process, I was just doing deep dive research on the major industries really trying to understand at a much more granular level how they were manifesting all of these unintended negative consequences, these negative externalities. And, you know, frankly, most industries are fairly straightforward in how they screw up the planet. Um, You know, whether that was oil and gas or, you know, logistics and transportation. And I, you know, I've been somebody who, you know, we have solar panels, we have an electric car. Uh, But I have to say when I got to fashion, I was just floored, uh, frankly, by the magnitude of the negative impact, um, the complexity of those negative impacts, um, and how little awareness that I had had individually about them in in, in making my day-to-day decisions. And, you know, it was really when I started to take that information on board just as a consumer and found it incredibly, incredibly difficult to actually put those into action Um, I thought that there was something really wrong. And it was clear to me that the industry was, I would say, a solid seven to 10 years behind um, a number of other uh, major uh, consumer industries like food and CPG and both owning up to the problems and and really starting to put in place solutions and and also educate the consumer. And so 
you know, it was really born out of that frustration that Another Tomorrow really came about. Definitely. So would you say, like, is it more so the brands are not maybe uh, wanting to pay up, put the investment into more sustainable practices? Um, or really, are they just uneducated about how to go about it? Is it a little bit of both? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I genuinely think that the supply chains in this industry are incredibly, incredibly complex. And people are not generally taught to really think about the impacts at every single step of the supply chain. And so, you know, I, I think that genuinely most people do act um, according to their level of awareness. And I think that that's a really, really important starting point. Um, there's also the challenge um, that this industry has been, you know, going for lower and lower cost and greater and greater production. And that does often fly in the face of um, more sound, certainly sourcing policies. I think the exciting thing is that business models, new business models are really starting to break that association. Um, and I think it's been unclear that the consumer actually was, you know, was willing to uh, was willing to really pay more. So I think it's been a confluence of things. But um, I do think that there is a, a much um, faster growing level of awareness and some very positive intentions at, at this current moment in time. Yeah. So how would you describe your your vision for another tomorrow? Uh, where do you want to go with this? How are you solving this problem? We solve it in many different ways. You know, what was clear to me at the very outset was that um, a lot of consumers were not educated in this particular area and they view sustainability and fashion, um, rightly so in many respects, through the lens of fewer, better things. And so our market positioning is really direct to consumer luxury with embedded um, owned resale to really address that democratization of quality and lifetime pieces. On top of that, we source in a what I would say is holistically sustainable and ethical way, taking into account environmental, human, and animal welfare. And we manifest all of that through to the customer with technology-enabled transparency using digital identities and a QR code that they can scan. And so really, I guess you could say that we've kind of thrown the kitchen sink at this, um, <laughs> but we've understood from the outset that we needed to solve the problem that the consumer initially had, which was this desire for access to fewer, better, high quality things, and then bring the consumer on board little by little through information, through transparency, and through new business models. And so for us, I would say as a whole, when I think about who we are as a company, we're really trying to solve problems at the intersection of design, sustainability, and technology that serves both our customer and serves the planet. And that can manifest, I think, in really, really exciting ways as we grow. Definitely. Out of the gate, how is she finding you, the, the customer who is as cares as much as you do? You know, it's interesting. Um, there's definitely that niche customer who cares as much <laughs> as much as we do. <laughs> and that customer is actively looking all the time for brands who fit her values. And so I would say uh, that customer can find us pretty easily. Uh, what's been interesting is that actually our early adopter customer has really been the true luxury customer. I think that there's been so much frustration with the sales cycles, um, the sort of yo-yo of, you know, should I buy it now? Is it going to be on sale in a month? That our price point relative to our quality has been incredibly attractive to that traditional luxury customer. And so that's actually been our early adopter. 
And whether or not she is really focused on sustainability or understands how her values pertain to fashion at this point in time, that really varies dramatically. Usually this customer is very focused on living their values in other parts of their lives, but understanding how it actually pertains to fashion, I think is something that's still relatively new to many people. And that's exciting for us. Yes. So it, would you say it's the, the consumer, it's still about style first. They're not Yes. For the most part, they're not seeking out sustainable brands. They're seeking out brands they love. And gosh, was did you go about that by, I don't know, teaming with the designer, finding what did that mean for your company? Yes. I mean, for us, it was very clear that it had to be really attractive product that, you know, from a fashion perspective and from a price point perspective, really met those customers' needs. So having not come from inside the industry, it was really critical that we had a, an incredibly experienced uh, design team. And so I'm thrilled that Jane Chung is our creative director. She has 30 plus years of experience in the industry, initially trained under Donna Karen, was the founding creative director of, of DKNY. Um, and what was really remarkable to me about Jane is that after leaving DKNY, she started her own ultra luxury line. And I got to see what she actually did almost by herself, you know, with a very small team um, and the level of excellence and execution. And so we've really said, you know, this customer should not have to compromise. And so she's brought that level of expertise and excellence in combination with no compromises on the sustainability side to really deliver a collection that's the best of both worlds. Definitely. I know you've teamed with some uh, retail partners um, to also, again, uh, I guess, align with like-minded like brands or just to get the word out. Tell me what um, what that approach was about and what retailers make sense for you. Yeah, you know, our whole ethos is really about partnership, whether that's in our supply chain or in our distribution partners. And although we are a predominantly direct-to-consumer brand, uh, we certainly see the need for strong partners um, on the distribution side. And I've always really admired what Matches Fashion has done and the way that they've really committed to um, emerging designers to really grow with them. And so they were a really obvious partner at the outset. And so we started talking to them well before launch and they are our sole strategic wholesale partner at this juncture and they've just been wonderful throughout. Nice. Tell me about uh, the transparency. You mentioned QR code, which <laughs> we keep talking about on Glossy as having a moment, but um, Tell me about what the consumer wants to know. What is available to them right now exactly? They, is the QR code when, come in when they, when they get their item and they're able to trace it back? And what do you know about how, how they're taking to that and if they're using that? Sure. Yeah. So we offer this in a number of different ways. So initially, uh, you know, it was just on the care content label of each garment so that you do see it when it arrives. There's a little note card that arrives in the box with an explanation um, with a bit of a call to action. Um, and you can scan it with your phone using the camera. Now, I think all of us have been trained how to do that with COVID and menus. Um, and that allows the customer to see the entire provenance journey and also the reasons why we made some of those decisions as it relates back to our values. Um, in response to a lot of interest to see some of that information pre-purchase, we've also put um, example journeys on all of our PDPs. Uh, the reality is that every single item gets its own unique digital identity, so no two are exactly alike uh, necessarily. 
Uh, but we do have those on the product detail pages of the website as well. And we do, we are able to see the activations um, that come through and we're really excited um, that the vast majority of customers do utilize this function. That's awesome. To get this supply chain in place where you really felt confident in sharing every every detail along the way, uh, what was the process like? Was this more like extensive than you had maybe anticipated going in? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you know, I think every... Um, Every entrepreneur is marked by, you know, some level of naive optimism. And I would certainly put myself in that category at the outset. And, you know, frankly, I think sustainability was even then such a buzzword uh, that we thought that we that surely we would be able to find materials that met both our ethics and sustainability parameters, as well as our quality parameters. And the truth was we found almost nothing. And that ended up being a real blessing because we had to essentially develop all of our own custom fabrics, except for one. And in many cases, um, that actually resulted with us going all the way back to the farm level. And that happened first in our wool supply chain, where I was so concerned about the animal welfare issues that I had learned about in the wool supply chain, that certifications were not going to be enough. Um, I certainly didn't change careers to end up supporting industrialized agricultural practices that I, you know, that I don't agree with. And so I literally flew to Tasmania and met with the, um, the ethical farming community there. We had been put in touch by a wonderful organization called Fibershed, which supports regional ethical farming practices. And we ended up purchasing wool directly from two farms there. And that uh, was really such an incredible way to start because no matter what you read from a desk, um, it's so different when you actually arrive at the source and can understand much better. I mean, sustainability is fundamentally local. And so we've really built our supply chains you know, from the raw material where so much of the impact happens all the way up. And that's given us incredible insight and transparency into our supply chain and the option to really choose our chemicals policy, our wastewater management policy, making sure that everyone's paid a living wage. And so the irony for us is that we had this enormous database of this information before we actually knew what we were going to do with it. And it was when I met our technology partners, um, Everything, which is an amazing Internet of Things yeah. company that all of this came together and we were able to manifest this for the customer and effectively bring them on the same journey that we went on. Yes. Oh my gosh. Talk to me. You've established all of these partners. Uh, you've got a plan in place. COVID hits. We've been talking to a lot of brands about, you know, how they're finding the need. There's a need to diversify along the supply chain, maybe not rely on, on one partner for one thing. Um, how did that impact you? You know, we were very, very lucky, I have to say. Um, partially, it was just timing. And partially, it, you know, we already started out with a fair number of partners because we've really gone to each individual factory based on what they really specialize in from an expertise perspective. So we, we certainly weren't doing everything in, in one place. Um, but frankly, you know, part of it truly was timing. We had a large shipment go out from Italy um, at the end of February. And so very little was delayed, you know, as a result of the closures in the spring. Um, and so, you know, for us, it's really been uh, a little bit more about just the challenge of getting physical product in front of new customers, you know, in, in, a, in a pandemic. 
and flexing you know, our merchandising strategy to make sure that we're really staying true to what the customer's core product needs are. Because the customer doesn't change, but what she needs you know, certainly, certainly does. And so you know, that for us has been uh, a big part of just adapting to the current environment. Yes. How would you describe that pivot in terms of the product itself? I, I keep sharing your, your Instagram uh, imagery. It's just a beautiful tailored pieces that are so speaking my language. <laughs> but um, are, was there a shift to more, um, I don't know, comfort wear or um, is there a sweatpant in the mix? <laughs> you know, it was, for us, it was really a matter of, of emphasis. I mean, luckily, the way that uh, we really uh, de- approached this collection, Jane designed this collection, was to think about this woman's entire life. And so, you know, comfort was already a part of her life before COVID. Uh, maybe not quite as much emphasis, but it was there. And so we already had a lot in the realm of, you know, casual wear, T-shirts, knits, etc., in the collection, dresses. And so this was the area that we really just adjusted our focus as COVID hit. Um, being honest, we do not have a sweatpant. <laughs> that is something that of course I wish that we'd had back in the spring. Um, and we are extending um, our casual wear range based on the success that we've seen to date. But it's also, I think, very important to recognize that um, this is a moment in time uh, that some preferences will change but that I think maintaining your core brand identity is really crucial. And so uh, we've adjusted to a degree, but it hasn't been a wholesale switch for us. Yes. Um, has Have those adjustments included maybe uh, changes to your approach um, around seasonality, seasons? Um, are you creating seasonal collections? Are you, um, is that the plan? So it's interesting because we actually intended to have a non-seasonal approach from the get-go. And so... From that standpoint, we were in a really good place. I mean, my general philosophy in terms of you know, new product development is kind of an 80-20 rule. So 80% you know, core collection, 20% new kind of at any given point in time. And you know, of course, people need different things in the dead of winter and at least in you know, the United States relative to summer. But we do have a global customer and we do want to have you know, a diversified product mix um, year round. And so... From a seasonality perspective, there really hasn't been a need for us to adapt in any kind of material way. We were very lucky that Matches uh, really understood that from the beginning. And so we were never really on the, I would say, traditional fashion cycle to begin with. And that's given us a lot of degrees of freedom. Yeah, for sure. I know that you are a certified B Corp. Can you tell me about whether your shopper, is she looking for that? Um, or are you maybe pushing that message out there? Um spotlighting the certification in your in your messaging? Yeah, you know, for us, I think that there's still a lot of um, education required around B Corp. You know, unsurprisingly, just as we were talking about where fashion stands relative to other industries, uh, B Corp is much more prevalent um, outside of fashion than inside of fashion. And so, you know, we're really excited to have that conversation around, you know, what B Corp is. Um, For us, it's incredibly important because it really creates true alignment with your stakeholders um, and certainly also with investors, which I think is is of increasing importance. And I think that customers, you know, as the intentions to shop ethically increase, the frustrations with understanding brand messaging will increase in, in parallel and already are. And so I do think that, you know, B Corp certification is a moniker of brands of all kinds to really demonstrate a commitment to doing the work. 
And so for us, it's important. Um, it's, a, I think, a representation of our seriousness. Um, and, you know, we're excited to see many others starting to come along on this journey. Definitely. Would you say that you're, I mean, you're at an advantage for among sustainable brands because, or sustainability focused brands, because you, you started with a focus on sustainability. Can brands kind of backtrack and get there? What would you recommend? Oh gosh. Yes. I mean, it's definitely easier. <laughs> it's definitely <laughs> easier to start from scratch. And, you know, I think that you've seen that even in, in food and in beauty, where a lot of the large um, incumbents have decided to buy, you know, sustainable challenger brands rather than necessarily take that on. But I think that given the necessity of change, I think everyone is trying their best to adjust. Um, I think that there are different philosophies. You know, in certain respects, I do think it's a good idea to just start somewhere because you start to see that there are those early wins. But generally speaking, for it to actually be meaningful, I think it's really important for brands to assess what is their biggest impact and how are their own um, business models and incentive structures contributing to um, negative outcomes that were un unintended. And so I think it's ideal to think about what are those five-year goals for where you could ultimately get and what are the bite-sized steps that you can take to start taking action. And then also, are there ways that you can adapt your business model today to really address, I think, some of the overproduction that has been one of the biggest challenges, arguably, for the industry? Definitely. I mean, obviously, baby steps are happening, but overall, like as it stands today, would you say... <laughs> the majority of sustainability efforts in the fashion industry. Is it all marketing? Is there, um, how would you describe it now? I think it's a combination. Um, you know, when you understand that your customer is caring more and more about something, I think it's very natural to want to talk about that. And I think that does lend itself to um, maybe more rhetoric than, than matches reality. I do also think there are some very well-intentioned brands who might not understand as well what sustainability means. And that also, I think, leads to uh, some misuse of the language, which I think is, is, is problematic. But in general, I think that um, you, know, you have to start from a, a starting point of really understanding your supply chain in the first place, because you can't manage what you can't measure. And then you certainly can't, you know, speak uh, truthfully about something that you don't understand. So I think it's that initial starting point of really doing the work and digging into what does your supply chain look like really in the first place that, that needs to happen at greater depth. And actually, in some respects, the challenges that people have had in their supply chains, I think, have made that a necessity, even just from a straight business standpoint, which I think is, is really positive. So in general, I would say it's a mixed bag. Um, I think intentions are good. There's a lot of work to be done, but I'm excited to see the momentum. Yes. Are there red flags that consumers can look for? I know like I think I mentioned to you before, like I know some of them. I've seen a brand hype up 100% sustainable and I'm like, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, but <laughs> what a brand saying that it's kind of a red flag in your book? Oh, gosh. You know, I think that... Um, it's so tricky for consumers because it is so nuanced, but I would say, you know, the initial place to start is really dig and look on somebody's website. And what is the degree of depth that people go into about what sustainability and ethics means to them? I think the challenge is that these words are not uniformly defined. And so you kind of have to go and see what it means to the individual brand 
and how much information they're willing to share about their practices and why they make the decisions that they make. So that would really be my starting point. Um, I think the reality for so many is that, um, you know, just the information that you get on a product page is it's fairly shallow. And so if you're seeing that and you're seeing the word sustainable, um, then that's, I think, an initial red flag. Definitely. You mentioned Jane, I believe, your designer. Um, who else did you feel the need to, I guess, bring on board early on? It seems like um, your editorial team is strong and uh, crucial to your success. Who, who did you bring on board? Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, the first two people that we brought on were really our sustainability team. Um, that was super important to me because, like I said, I had done a lot of academic research, but wanted to make sure that I really understood how sustainability practically applied to fashion supply chains, the history of sustainability in fashion and best practices. So those are the first two people I brought on board. Um, I also had the benefit of um, having a remarkable mentor at the beginning of the process who had just come out of a senior uh, CMO role at one of the largest um, uh, fashion companies. And so she really taught me the ropes in terms of brand building. Um, and really kind of we brought the, you know, brought the team on at the various stages. So really starting with brand building, sustainability, design, sourcing and production, editorial thereafter. And so it's just been sort of one, one step at a time, but it's a remarkable team. And I think that the important thing is that we all have the same vision. And so it's been an incredible collaborative effort. But you mentioned the editorial side, and that is something that's really, really important to us. Um, I think about uh, us as really having sort of three core elements to our mission. One is clearly the product. The second is very much education. And you can see that from us in a number of ways. You see that through transparency and the QR code. We have an extremely extensive sustainability section on the site. Um, and we also have an editorially independent magazine. So there's a lot of content for people who are curious. And then the third pillar is really um, activism. I think that there's a huge issue with telling people that they can only affect change by buying things. And so it's important for us mm -hmm. to offer our community another, um, another avenue to make change. And so for us, that also um, entails having a petition part of the site where people can add their voices to issues that they care about that positively impact the industry. Oh my gosh, interesting. First of all, on the education um, point, um, is it more so, it's more so directed at the consumer. Are you, do you feel you're educating the, the industry as well? Is it, do other brands, learn, are they learning from you? Are they going onto the site? You know, I think it's, it varies. I, I have to say, I'm, I'm really excited when people cite things on our sustainability section back to me. And that's been other brands, that's been journalists. Um, you know, frankly, we've learned so much from others too. So this is by no means a one-way street, but it really is intended to be a much broader resource uh, relative to just our brand. I mean, we've done such extensive work. And I think that, frankly, it does not make sense to continuously reinvent the wheel. And so we hope that what we've been able to put out there is, you know, in service to others. Definitely. Well, this will um, air a week after the election day. Just wondering, with all of the activism you're doing, and you're very bold about what your brand stands for, would you say that this election is uh, impactful to the brand? Will this, um, will the results affect you in a big way? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's such an unknown, you know, how this country and how the world reacts to the ultimate results. Um, I think that, you know, when I look at 
one of the crucial ingredients that's missing in sustainability um, in this industry. It's really regulation. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think brands can do a lot. I think consumers can do a lot. I think investors can do a lot. But fundamentally, regulation is absolutely crucial. And uh, we need a major, major push in that arena in both environmental welfare, human welfare around living wages, and and even animal welfare. And so, you know, from my standpoint, I think that the election outcomes uh, will have a significant impact on how much of that we see in the next four years. Definitely. To switch gears a bit, want to know what you're planning for a holiday. Are you already in holiday mode? Me personally or the brand? The brand. <laughs> or both. Oh, Take it whatever no, way you want. Question. So, you know, holiday for us is very interesting because we um, we don't go on sale. And so, you know, it's such a a major sort of promotional season uh, for so many of the industry. And so for us, that really entails communicating with our community about why we don't go on sale. You'll, so you'll see some of that from us. Um, but we are excited to have a couple of new things coming out that we think are really appropriate for holiday. Um, my favorite is actually a blanket that is on the way. And that oh, was um, an amazing recycled cashmere that was supposed to be an overcoat, which we really thought was not so required in this particular moment of time, and <laughs> ended up becoming a blanket. Um, so we're excited to dip a toe in the home category, um, which I'm personally looking forward to should be arriving uh, very shortly. Yes. Is it a challenge to never go on sale? What is, I guess, what is going to keep her coming back? It's newness. It's how are you driving her to the site? How are you driving her to, yeah, to shop? You know, for us, it's, we always want to make sure that we are delivering something of value to our customer. And sometimes that's a little bit of newness, but ultimately it's knowing that you can always come to us for exceptional quality relative to the price, for holistic values. And you don't have to spend any extra energy thinking about, you know, should I wait for this to go on sale? So I think honestly, it's really in service to the customer to kind of take that off the table and just know that you're always getting something exceptional for a price that makes a lot of sense. Uh, We also, as you referenced previously, spend a lot of time and energy on content. And we're really excited that that's continued to be a strong draw for our community as well. Yes. Where are you sharing that content? What's the strategy that there? You know, it's really been across the board. So one of the things that we've launched uh, back in September is this initiative called Women for Tomorrow. And there's so many incredible women doing such important work out there that it was really important for us to share that with our community. And so we've started to feature a series of women on a roughly two to three week cadence that goes out across our Instagram LinkedIn, Twitter, the newsletter is ultimately where those conversations take place. And then ultimately, those will all have a place where they live together on the site. So uh, we really love doing that. And we've seen really fantastic reception. Great. Is everything organic, word of mouth right now? Are you also putting money um, behind digital marketing? We definitely do. I mean, we certainly have a marketing budget. Um, We utilize social media channels. We utilize partnerships. Um, we also have a sort of unique distribution model in that we're um, continuing to work with uh, boutiques and individuals in a, in a really sort of technology um, embedded way. So, you know, it, it takes a village to launch a brand, as you know, Jill. <laughs> you know, so it's a really it's a multifaceted strategy and, and we certainly do have a, a you know marketing budget behind it. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I feel like this is a big uh 
topic to tackle at the end of this conversation, but resale, what is happening um, launching resale in-house? We've had stories recently about uh, the complexities of it all, but um, what's going on there? We're so excited. So this was really a part of our business plan from the very beginning. And it came up when I was first speaking with prospective customers. And, you know, I, I think what there's been is a little bit of a disconnect on some of like the third party resale sites where your consigner is not necessarily your customer. And I think there's a huge opportunity there. Um, and so we saw the demand for that and we plan to launch it about a year after we launch, because of course, it's a brand new brand. If you haven't sold product yet, you can't resell product. So, right. um, you know, we think that the first half of next year is going to be perfect timing. We already have the page up on the site. Um, but for us, it's actually not that difficult. Um, and partially that's because of the stage where we're at. And yep. we already have a customer who's trained to understand what to expect from resale. Um, so we're really, really excited. Um, and it offers us the opportunity to take back product as the experts of how that product was made. If it needs to be fixed, we can fix it. Um, but ultimately, you know, these are intended to be heirloom items. And uh, we're really excited to offer them to an expanded customer base. For sure. If you look back after year one, what would make this a successful year? You know, I think in many ways, we're kind of already there at the end of October. I mean, I'm so thrilled that our product has really added value to our customer. I think that that's the crucial proof point for any new brand is, is there that product market fit? Are you truly adding value? And particularly in an industry where there's so much product. And so for me, that's hugely satisfying. Um, and I'm really thrilled to see that We've also made a difference in terms of, you know, raising awareness and some crucial issues and demonstrating new business models. And so for us, you know, albeit a very challenging year for the industry, we feel really good about uh, where we're at. Right on. And last question, what would you say to those, I guess, naysayers who, who argue that, you know, being a fashion brand, you're creating more, more stuff. Uh, can you be sustainable <laughs> and be a fashion brand? I think they have a good point. You know, I think that, um, you know, if, if there's one challenge, it's precisely that. And so I think that that's where circularity comes into play, both in terms of the design process um, and also business models, you know, like resale. And so I think the challenge is to be, you know, there are very best and reduce raw material usage to the absolute lowest extent possible. But, you know, to the extent that you're extracting anything, you know, there is a trade off. So, you know, I think that the challengers are really, really important. And um, they're the ones who constantly, you know, push brands like ourselves to ask questions about, you know, where can we do even better? Yeah, as everyone, consumers demand transparency, fast fashion brands are going to have to answer to it. What changes do you see, I guess, in the next five years, let's say? You know, I think that that end of the industry is going to be fascinating because there has been a real acceleration of conversations around circular economy. And I think that the easiest thing for any consumer to do um, in terms of making a more sustainable choice is to buy something secondhand. I think you're already seeing that with Gen Z. And so what that does, I think, is it really challenges all companies to make longer life cycle products. Otherwise, there is no resale value to that product. And so I think that's going to be um, a major challenge um, for a lot of existing incumbents. But I think that we're going to see so much innovation to rise to that challenge. So 
I'm personally optimistic, but I think we all know that we've sort of hit a wall in terms of how the you know the old model was working, and that's going to entail some some pretty massive change. For sure. Well, Vanessa, this is so great. We covered a lot of territory. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such an insightful uh, set of questions, and it's a pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this episode, which was produced by Pierre Bienname. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Don't forget that we're offering Glossy Podcast listeners 20% off an annual Glossy Plus membership, giving you unlimited access to fashion and beauty stories. Use the code podcast at checkout. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Thank you.